You're listening to Season 3 of Mobile Suit Breakdown, a podcast covering the entirety of sci-fi mega-franchise Mobile Suit Gundam for new fans, old fans, and not-yet-fans, where we watch, analyze, and review all 41 years of the iconic anime in the order it was made. We research its influences, examine its themes, and discuss how each piece of the Gundam canon fits within the changing context in Japan and the world from 1979 to today. This is episode 3.45, Into the Wilderness, and we are your hosts. I'm Tom, a lifelong Gundam fan, and I think we'll all be happier if we just pretend that Double Zeta ended last week. And I'm Nina, no longer new to Double Zeta, and now fully comprehending the Gundam fan community's ambivalence about this series. Mobile Suit Breakdown is made possible by the support of 467 patrons and subscribers. Thank you all, and special thanks go out to our newest supporters. Jordan, Ephemeral Eternity, Felix Z, Rambaral's Goof Troop, and Johnny on the Spot. This podcast would not be possible without your support. This episode releases on Saturday, July 31st. Next week, we look back on the Mobile Suit Gundam Double Zeta series as a whole, before going on hiatus to rest and prepare for Season 4, covering Char's counterattack and several SD Gundam shorts. Also coming up, the podcast's third birthday and our annual pin promotion. To those of you new to the podcast or to the Patreon, each year we design and release a limited edition pin that goes out to everyone pledging $5 or more on a set date. During the hiatus, we will be making most updates and announcements about the new season, the promotion, and anything else that comes up on social media and on Patreon. This week we are covering the final episode of Mobile Suit Gundam Double Zeta, number 47, Warrior Once More, or Senshi Futatabi. This episode originally aired on January 31st, 1987, and it would be more than six years before Gundam would return to television. This episode was written by Endo Akinori and Tomino Yoshiyuki. It was directed by Sugishima Kunihisa, with storyboards by Sugishima and Tomino. For our research this week, we have the penultimate installment of Heike Monogatari Breakdown. But first, it's time for the penultimate installment of Radio Free Shangri-La. We now return to the case of the horrifying Haro on the colony spinning intergalactic investigative adventures of space detective Zabibi and his loyal companions. While hunting for the missing Haro, our heroes discover the body of antique stealer and fence Macbeth. The suspicious creaking of old floorboards reveals that his killers are still in the building. No, we have to finish the story. Ugh. Ga- 
task team to command. We got him. Roger that, gas team. Bring the targets back to the Ninalon for the next phase of our plan. Doesn't the knockout gas kind of smell like Dengar cologne? Earlier aboard the Ninalon. Earlier than what? Huh? You just walked up to me and said, Earlier aboard the Ninalon. Oh, I just figured that since the narrator is unconscious now, someone else would have to introduce this scene. Otherwise, it might be confusing for the audience. What the heck are you talking about? Honestly, I have no idea. Oh, I think I might be having, you know... A new type moment? Yeah. Don't worry, I won't tell management. Us interns have to stick together. Actually, that's why I wanted to talk to you. We just got another message from the interns running Sovereign Glemmy's new type core laboratory. Ugh, are they still having trouble with the cyber enhancement process? Well, yes and no. The problem is the test subjects. Glemmy wants to send them into battle, but some folks got to talking with the interns from Human Resources at the last session of the Intern National, and it turns out the new type core isn't getting paid. What? They're not getting benefits either. And they're all way too young to work. Legally. Oh my god. They're interns. We have to help them. I hoped you'd say that, because I've got a plan. Glemmy ordered the whole squad of them thought out, locked into mass-produced cubelays, and sent into battle. But what if we just used some other cyber new types instead? It's not like he's going to check. And if he does, we can just say they stole the mobile suits. Yeah, that's believable. But where are we going to get a dozen cyber new types on short notice? Actually, I have some thoughts about that. I've been feeling this pressure lately, and I think it's coming from the Nindra. What if someone has been cyber-enhancing the voice actors in Radio Free Shangri-La? So, you want to kidnap a bunch of unstable psychic actors, swap them in for the Pudu interns, and then send them into battle? Exactly. I mean, what's the worst that could happen? Well, none of them have ever piloted mobile suits before, so they could all die? No, I meant what's the worst that could happen to us? Oh, well, yeah, I don't really see any downside for us. My name is Tish Tishvale. I was a voice actor for Radio Free Shangri-La. Now I'm trapped in the cockpit of a mobile suit. The autopilot is locked in, taking me toward a battle with Lady Haman's fleet. An unfamiliar voice crackles over the radio. I could try to explain that I'm not supposed to be here. I could beg for my life. But I don't think it would do any good. And I have my pride as an actor. If I have to die here, I'll die in character. I answer her. Yes. For Master Glemmy, I'll strike Mon's fleet. Even if it costs me my life. The comm circuit closes. It won't open again. Our captors wanted to make sure we couldn't talk to each other. I think again about how we ended up here. How much I missed the simple pleasures of making radio dramas for an audience of dozens from an old warehouse overlooking Sludge Lake. 
How we were drugged and secretly transformed into enhanced broadcasters by someone we trusted. How our minds were twisted until we could no longer distinguish the reality of our lives from the stories we were writing. And how we left our final story unfinished. I can't help but feel like this is all Tim Timpson's fault. But he did leave us with one gift. As the thrusters engage and we rocket towards the enemy fleet, I close my eyes and let my consciousness expand. Even in the blind darkness, I can see my fellow actors inside their mobile suits. I call out to them. Tish? Is that you? I can hear you. I don't want to die out here. I refuse to die before I win an EGOT. As Tish Tishville's mind reaches out to me, your humble narrator can feel the nascent news-type powers of the whole cast of Radio Free Shangri-La, mingling in the infinite vastness of space. What do you say, friends? Shall we finish the case of the horrifying Haro? But how? We don't have any broadcast equipment. They even locked us out of our short-range radios. No, but if we combine our cyber news-type powers... We can broadcast to the whole Earth sphere. With our psychic powers, it will be... The largest audience we've ever had. But we don't have any sound effects. We can't have an action-packed climax without sound effects. Wait! I still have the sound effects cassette Mr. Timson gave me. We can use that! And so, as the curtain is closing on Radio Free Shangri-La, they unite in heart and soul to produce one last episode. Tune in next time for the end of everything. And now the recap for Warrior Once More. The outside of the Mulsa is punctuated by explosions. On the nail Argama, Pututu lies sick and injured in bed, her survival uncertain. The rest of the Gundam team assemble on the bridge, strategizing their next move. Their enemy is hiding behind Core 3, and Judo is certain, as only a new type can be certain, that Haman is waiting for him. The two of them will meet in space. And one way or another, they will end this. Following him down the hall, El tries to convince him not to go alone, but he insists, and Beecha stops her from pressing any further. Judo is determined to do this. All the rest of them can do is protect the nail Argama, and make sure Judo has somewhere to come back to. Astonaji has the double Zeta resupplied and ready for launch. With a smile and a thumbs up, Judo leaves for his final showdown with Haman. At the same time, on the other side of Core 3, Haman puts on a normal suit, 
shrugs off Kiara's concern and offers of backup, and takes off. It doesn't take long for her and Judo to spot each other across the battlefield. But as they rocket straight towards each other, their violent clash is prevented by missile fire. The remnants of the new type core, their mobile suits and bits zipping and swirling, surround them. Just as Haman and Judo prepare to fight their way out, shots from outside the perimeter take out one of the dark cubile. It's Kiara and Ni. Nee. Leave them to us, Kiara laughs, blasting a path for Haman and Judo to get away. She and Ni nee take their places at the center of the massed new type core, Kiara's own new type power shielding her even as Ni nee is caught and killed in the inescapable web of beam fire. Scything through her enemies, Kiara lays waste to all in her path, but her mobile suit suffers fatal damage. Electricity crackling through her cockpit, Kiara removes her helmet, tears open her collar, and declares, I am Kiara soon, as she collides with the last dark cubile. With a laugh, she tears the enemy mobile suit apart before her own suit explodes, taking her with it. Inside Mosa, Judo flies above the mansion and gardens that were Haman's headquarters, the place where he first met her. He can sense that Kiara has died, and her spirit seems to warn him just before Haman emerges and begins to shoot. As they fire back and forth, shots landing all around them, the sky cracks and flickers, revealing the asteroid's stony, cave-like interior. Out of nowhere, they are thrown sideways. Mosa has crashed into Core 3. The shockwave of the impact sends the Nail Argama and the remnants of Haman's fleet careening, and some are destroyed when they hurtle through the dense field of debris. Haman tries to run, but Judo chases her down, telling her to give up. All of her footholds have been destroyed. But when she stops and turns to face him, it's to fight, not to surrender. Their sabers clash, locking together until Haman flips her mobile suit behind Judo's. She holds him in place, training the Kubile's bits on him. You'll die too, he yells, but she only smiles and shoots. Judo disconnects the double Zeta's torso from its legs in order to get away. He slashes across the bits, destroying them, before disconnecting the core fighter from the core top. As he flies by, Haman's Kubile swats the core fighter aside, and Judo goes flying when the cockpit springs open. Leaving her own cockpit, Haman pursues Judo, both of them flying with Verniers. He grabs a length of metal from the floating junk of the city, swinging it like a sword to smack Haman's sidearm from her hand. They collide, helmet to helmet. Haman tries one last time to convince Judo to join her, but his rejection is harsh and unequivocal, and she shoves him away. They both return to their cockpits to resume the fight. Horribly, the core fighter won't move. Yet before Haman can close in and finish Judo off, an energy barrier protects him. New types he's never met, joined by Camille, lend him their energy, their will. Their power reforms the double Zeta, and powers a beam from the mobile suit's forehead. Haman runs, flying through a narrow gap. 
Chasing after her, Judo is halfway through the passage when El Pipuru appears to him. Above you, she warns, giving Judo time to dodge Haman's trap. They clash one last time. With their cockpits open, they talk while electricity crackles around Haman. She clutches her side, wounded, and despairs of humanity, believing they will never truly be free of Earth's gravity. Judo tries to pull her from the cockpit of the cubelet, but she pilots it away from him and dies when it explodes around her. Explosions also rack Core 3 and Mosa. Ready to make his escape, Judo is dismayed to find that the core fighter is stuck again. It won't disconnect from the other double Zeta parts, and the mobile suit itself won't move. His friends watch from the nail Argama, eyes straining for a sight of him as the colony and the asteroid violently come apart. Staggering onto the bridge, Pudutu says she can tell them where to shoot the megaparticle beam cannon so the Judo will have a clear path of escape. Precise and certain, she directs their aim and their timing, and once Judo is safely out, returning to them, Pudutu smiles faintly, sighs, and slumps over in her chair. With the battle over, the Federation and Ayug fleets arrive. Minerva confesses to Ayug command that she is a body double. The real Minerva Zabi has been missing since the Grip's conflict. After all that's happened, Judo breaks down. So many deaths for what? It all seems so pointless now. None of the serious problems are being addressed. Nothing significant changes. Bright has no comforting words for him, only offers that if Judo needs an outlet for that anger, he can punch Bright. Judo takes a massive swing at him and knocks him back. It's unclear whether it makes Judo feel any better. Time passes. Their whole group, the Nail Argama crew, Bright, the kids from Shangri-La, Shinta and Kum and Haro, are all assembled at one of the moon's spaceports. Judo and Rue are going to Jupiter. It will be four or five years before they're back, and their friends have come to see them off. Sela and Lena watch from another level of the spaceport, Lena worrying that if Judo sees her, he'll change his mind about going. But Sela urges her not to underestimate her brother. Lena decides to go to him, and they have a happy reunion before Judo sets off for the frontier. When we first watched this episode, you were absolutely furious. You've now had a couple of days, you've watched it again. Do you feel the same way about it? I still really don't like this episode, although some of the things that made me the most angry on the first watch through have cooled a bit, and some things that I didn't feel particularly angry about the first time through, I now feel very angry about. <laughs> so, All right. Uh, I guess this is going to be an angry episode. I'd like to start with something fairly low stakes. 
I try not to be one of those people who gets too caught up in continuity issues, but this episode has such serious continuity issues with the one previous to it, and in ways that undercut the drama of what's happening. No sign of Axis, no sign of the damage that Axis did to Core 3. It sliced through half of the colony. Here, the colony is whole. Until Mosa runs into it and smashes a hole through it again. Which, it already hit Core 3. How, pray tell, has it curved around <laughs> to hit Core 3 again? Yeah. At least the script says that it is coming back around, but no explanation is ever given for that, except for when Haman says that the nail Argama is somehow responsible for this, which it patently is not. Also, the fact that Haman treats it as this very important thing when, to my knowledge, we've never heard of it before, and it turns out that that's where her old headquarters was? I mean, I was very confused by her and Judo suddenly being inside of something. There's definitely a transition shot that's missing there. It didn't register for me until that bit where the um, sky projection or hologram breaks and suddenly you can see the stone. And then I thought they were in Axis because I thought that's where her fancy mansion slash headquarters was. But apparently, no, it's inside the Mosa and has been all along. The Mosa, which I don't think I saw before last episode and had never heard of. <laughs> I mean, it's um, it's the, like, habitation area for Axis. Okay, and it's cool that you know that, but that's not from the show. <laughs> just, like, great. <laughs> uh, that is never explained or mentioned in the show that's at that's, all. <laughs> that's that's never been explained. I mean, it is there in the art, and if you go back to Zeta, like when they use Axis to break open the gate of Zidane, there is a scene where they detach Mosa. I just found it all very confusing and not in a exciting things are happening fast kind of way, just in a, oh, this was not plotted out very well. Yeah, it felt very much way. like they were just rushing through hoping nobody paid too much attention to anything that was happening, just trying to get it done. It really feels like the previous episode and this episode were made by completely different teams who were given very vague briefs as to what should happen. <laughs> and yet it's the same writer. It, they're both oh. by Endo. Wow. Yeah. There are, I would say, both small-scale technical continuity errors, like just straight-up mistakes, and then there are I guess we could also call them continuity errors where like things have been set up and then never paid off or things get paid off without ever having been set up, which is just bad script writing. I think the script for this episode is a total mess. On the technical mistakes side, all of the mass-produced cubelets for the new type core that show up in this episode are now black. They were very distinctly gray in the prior episode. At one point, Haman's hair looks brown. Like There are a bunch of little things like that. And then there's a lot of stuff that has been set up in prior episodes that I was really thinking there would be some kind of payoff for, like the Double Zeta gets several rounds of upgrades. It gets that armor that can withstand beam blasts for three seconds. It gets those extra missile pods that it can jettison as distractions. And I was really expecting any of that to show up in the battles, and it just doesn't. This sort of comes back to... My biggest beef on the first watch through, the whole duel, the fact that we're having a duel, 
and that it is somehow so important and the whole battle hinges on it, which is so (laughs) anti-Gundam and so anti-everything that this show has been up until this point. Yeah, it's not just anti-Gundam in general, it's anti-Gundam Double Zeta very specifically. And I'm sitting here thinking, well, there's no practical in-story justification for doing this. Removing Judo won't stop Ayug, and even if Haman thinks he's such a big threat that he has to be eliminated right now, there's no good reason for her to do that herself. It's true that if Judo can remove Haman, that will severely damage Axis because she's made sure she's the only one who can run things. But from her side, she has no good reason to go out there. I mean, more than that, it really looks like At least based on this episode, Haman's forces have been reduced to three ships, two of which get destroyed during this episode. Yeah, Haman is the only person leading her Neo-Zeon thing, but this conflict with Glemitoto has basically removed her as a threat, and that Ayug slash Federation fleet coming would have no trouble mopping up the remnants of Haman's Neo-Zeon. And as Judo points out, she has no footholds left. The thing to do, probably, and I don't know what the Federation or Ayug would do with her if they caught her, I assume some sort of tribunal and a very public execution or life in prison. Uh, The thing to do seems to be run into deep space. (laughs) Yeah. Now, you could have constructed a Haman character who resents the exile so much that she's willing to die rather than go back into exile. But that is not the Haman character they have constructed, although they have done such a poor job of constructing the Haman character, and this episode violates so much of what we know about her as a person, that it seems like they just don't know what to do with this woman. She even specifically calls out humanity for having made it all the way to the asteroid belt and then not having stayed to colonize the asteroid belt or not having continued exploring. And yet she, that's not a mantle that she is going to take up. Having recognized all of this, that frankly, I find the whole duel really dumb. Part of me trying to give the show the benefit of the doubt was thinking, well, what if it's artistically amazing? What if this gives us really incredible fight scenes? What if this duel, I mean, is like a car chase <laughs> in a movie, right? Most of the time... Car chases and fight scenes are much more elaborate than they need to be, but that's because they're fun. Yeah, the spectacle is a valid reason. But it's artistically dull. Yeah, it's, it doesn't have a lot going for it. The best mobile suit fight in this episode is Kiara versus the Black Cubalace. That's the peak art-wise. And the Judo and Haman thing just feels like an afterthought in every way. And it's so much less satisfying than the bit with Glemmy in the prior episode. This is anticlimactic. I mean, that's the best word for it. I mentioned that they don't really know what to do with Haman, and the way she's portrayed in this episode is really counter to a lot of what we've seen from her. And it even is sort of inconsistent within itself, because when she's going out to the fight, she makes a point of mentioning her normal suit, right? Because Judo is so strong, I need to wear my normal suit, which to me implies that she wants to survive this encounter even if she loses. And yet she ends the episode by killing herself. Right. She doesn't try to escape her damaged cumulate. She's wounded, but... Well, but she, like, purposefully accelerates into the wall of the colony. She, like, crashes on purpose. 
Oh, see, I thought it was that her mobile suit was going to explode. It was damaged. They're in that couple of seconds where people get to have a conversation before they die. Mm-hmm. Judo reaches for her because he wants to get her out of the mobile suit. Classic she might judo. live. She's like, nah, and also I'm going to make sure the explosion is away from you. And she jets backwards. I didn't think she crashed, but she certainly doesn't try to save herself. And there was absolutely time. And there's that line where Judo asks her, why didn't you use your funnels more? And she says, I wanted this to be one-on-one. And Judo says something about her honor, which like, none of this makes any sense. One, the funnels do not make it a two-on-one fight. The funnels are still part of a one-on-one fight. Two, she did use her funnels extensively. Judo destroyed a bunch of them early on in the fight. Third, when has Haman ever cared about honor? Ever. Yep. And then her, like, her last line is, I'm glad I met such a strong child. What? Yeah. It, before she goes out to fight him, she tells Kiara, oh, Judo is already under my will or whatever. Something. that Something to imply that she is exerting influence and power over him, which is a lie or delusional <laughs> again. She does seem to have thought that throughout the whole season. So I'm not going to fault them for that line. I love that Haman's first memory of judo is him rubbing his butt because he just landed in the thorn bush on her balcony. God, I, I don't know if that's the script or the translation, but it's so weird that they land in the palace grounds on Mosa and Haman is like, do you know why I lured you here? And judo is like, because you're sentimental. And she says, no, because this is the first place where we met. <laughs> what do you think being sentimental means, lady? It's basically the only explanation for her behavior. There was one moment that to me felt very true to Haman, and that's when it's clear that she's starting to lose the battle and she takes one last stab at getting Judo to join her. (laughs) Yeah, it was nice to see her try that one more time, even if she was never, ever, ever able to offer him any kind of meaningful inducement or articulate any actual reason for him to join her. One line from Haman that I liked in this episode, maybe the only line in the whole duel that I liked, and it's when she says something like, to be human is to be alone. I found her very Hobbesian, because Hobbes talks about the state of nature, and he says, you know, this is where we get that famous line about the state of nature being nasty, brutish, and short, but that's not the full quote. The full quote is, the state of nature is solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. Seeing that she feels entirely justified in committing genocide, she probably is very Hobbesian. Oh, yeah. That's Haman. Yeah. That's the Haman we know. She's all about that feeling of isolation and loneliness and that total refusal to let anybody else in because in her mind, to be human, to be independent, to be strong requires you to be alone. But the show does seem to be saying that the opposite of that is new typism. To be a new type is to be not alone, to be, in fact, (laughs) surrounded by people and ghosts all the time. But there's so much about the discussion and fight between the two of them that didn't entirely make sense to me. You know, she says, we don't have time to wait for everybody to become new types. Not everybody can be a new type. She thinks everybody should be moving out into deep space, but she also wants to protect the Earth. Judo, we've heard him talk recently about preserving the earth, but then he's also talking about how people need to transcend their bodies. 
Neither one of them is able to articulate a clear ideology in this episode. Unlike the prior one, where Glemmy and Judo's conflict becomes a philosophical clash, here, Haman doesn't need an ideology because her whole thing is that she's just an autocrat who wants to consolidate the maximum amount of power. But then we get this pseudo-philosophical debate between the two of them during the duel, and it just doesn't have any punch, doesn't have any power to it. Yeah, they could have had a good fight, and they didn't. They could have had an interesting conversation, they don't really. There is a humorous part where she's basically a Scooby-Doo villain, saying, <laughs> and I would have gotten away with it too if it weren't for you meddling kids. You and your clever friends who prevented me from doing a genocide. <laughs> There's the moment when Judo is responding to her and saying, but then our fight is pointless. And I'm like, yeah, dude. Yeah, it <laughs> yes. absolutely is. This whole thing, super pointless. And making this the last episode, making this the ultimate climax of this show, of this war, and having it be so pointless just undermines everything that's come before this. What was the point of any of this? And that's why the ending ending, the, the sort of epilogue after Haman has been defeated, it feels so hollow because it really does just undercut everything that's happened in the show. Any sense of optimism or hope or change is just, like, rubbed out. In particular, I was deeply upset and disappointed by the scene right after they find out that the Minerva they've been interacting with is a body double. Oh, I think she's actually a clone. You get one. I was right about the Poodoos. Feels pretty petty for you to be like, yes, I was right about this thing that I already knew about before no, we just, went into the show. I've just been doing a bit. <laughs> now it's paid off. Maybe that's where Quattro disappeared, too. He kidnapped the real Minima and took her away. Hmm. Bright does say she's been missing since the Grips conflict. Hmm. Who else has been missing since the Grips conflict? Hmm. Anyway, Judo gets completely understandably angry and heartbroken over the number of people who have died and the fact that it appears as if nothing much is changing. Nothing really is happening. Everything is stabilizing into the same old thing. They're not doing anything to preserve the Earth any better than they were before. And the ultimate winners of all of this are a coalition of Ayug and the Federation, which are basically the same thing now. As close as they were before, now there's practically no difference between them. And I think Judo gets at that when he sees the fleet arrive and he's like, the Ayug fleet, no, the Federation fleet, but whatever. And Rue says to Judo, they won't get it no matter what you say, which is so defeatist. And what was the point of all of this if you can't actually make change? Right. And then the person who I wound up feeling very angry at at the end who I, it hadn't really registered with me to be angry the first time I watched it, but is Bright. I am so horribly disappointed in Bright. Because when he says, well, if, if you're angry, you can take it out on me. You can punch me to judo. It looks like he's doing something nice and self-sacrificing, but it's just a distraction. It's just a way to let judo blow off steam in a way that changes nothing. Punching Bright doesn't change the ecological situation on the Earth. It doesn't change the government. It doesn't help people living in the space colonies. It doesn't do anything. It's just a way 
for them to calm Judo down so he, you know, stops thinking about those <laughs> things. Yeah. And it also makes clear that Bright understands where Judo is coming from. Bright understands just how bad the situation is, how totally messed up it is. And has also given up on doing anything about it. Exactly. He can't do anything about it. And I think Bright is not just allowing Judo to punch him. Bright is asking Judo to punch him. Judo punching Bright is as much for Bright as it is for Judo. I think Bright is pretty angry at the situation and at himself. But like you said, he's given up. He knows that he can't make a meaningful change at this point, and he hates that about himself. I don't accept that he can't. I do not accept that. I don't require you to accept it, but I think you can acknowledge that Bright has accepted it. He, right, but the fact that he feels that way, the fact that he's given up, does not reflect a reality. It reflects the reality that he's an adult. That is one thing that I wondered about. You know, Rue's statement to Judo that they won't understand no matter what you say made me think, is it not that people can't change, but that adults can't change? I mean, isn't that the conflict between new types and old types? Between those who can change and those who are trapped by the gravity of the past? Stuck in the same orbits? And there's a, a beautiful and kind of tragic illustration of this you know, we just talked about it was one of the better scenes in the episode. But in Kiara, Judo could never have saved Kiara because Kiara didn't want to be saved. Kiara was the most herself cackling with glee on a battlefield with her boobs hanging out. No, yep. for real, though. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. It's, she, I laugh because it's funny, not because it's not true. She gets out there and she suddenly becomes the real Kiara again. I mean, she keeps repeating, I am Kiara soon, even as she's dying, screaming it into the void. I am Kiara soon. Triumphantly. That's her apotheosis. That is her ultimate form. It feels like a return to who she was meant to be, this battlefield sex pot <laughs> character. And there's no tragedy in it. She's exultant in the moment of her death, and then you see the like the sparkle form of her body become space dust and go flying out into the cosmos. It's joyful. There's a very old archetype of character of the sort of warrior who is not meant for peacetime. The Achilles type. Who is their most pure, most real self on a battlefield and can't really live any other way. And it does feel as though Kiara is meant to be one of those characters. Tying it to your Tale of the Heike pieces, the way she keeps declaring her name, this was a thing in battlefield duels. You wanted somebody to know who they were fighting because then when people told stories about the fight, they could say who you were, who your opponents were. So you would declare loudly who you were <laughs> while you were fighting. This isn't quite the Heike, but I was recently reading about one of the Mongolian invasions of Japan, and uh, some of the early records we have from the latter of those two invasions involve some samurai soldiers who rode out ahead of the rest of the uh, unit because they wanted to get into battle before anybody else so that they could claim the lion's share of the honor of being the first ones to fight. 
but there's a big headache for them because they all want the credit of going and fighting, but they need to find witnesses who will witness them fight and then report on it so that they can have like proof. How are people supposed to sing songs or tell tales about you if nobody sees the fights? Exactly. And so they're lucky enough to run into a different group. Uh, and so when they run into this different group, they all like announce their names and where they're from. And then they sort of pair off in a buddy system and agree to be each other's witnesses. I have two things that made me super mad that I could talk about. Okay. Um, I think because you had, you had just talked about the thing that made you like the most mad, right? Yep. There was one more, <laughs> there was one more little thing, which is I am highly disappointed that after having been really excited that the new type of ghosts were protecting Judo in a different way than they have in previous shows, that it wasn't about violence. Uh, we get the new type ghosts as shield and beam weapon in this episode. And it's mostly people Judo doesn't even know. Yeah, Lala a, is in there. Cats. It's a totally bizarre assortment of new type ghosts. Because it's mostly, I mean, Pudu is there. And Lala is there, and then it's mostly ghosts from Zeta, but also Camille is there. And excluding Puru, none of Judo's friends shows up for this one. Given that this happens right before Haman has a line about, is this what new types are? Like the will of people uniting together or something? I get a little bit of a Avatar vibe, like all the new types are connected even to the previous new types they never met. But as you mentioned, this is one of those things that the show doesn't earn. There is no setup for it. There's no precedent. There isn't really any payoff in terms of Judo conveying that he feels any connection to these people <laughs> other than that they showed up to help him out. Yeah. You could maybe argue that this is like a collection of new type ghosts who have personal reasons to be angry at Haman, but Lala doesn't have any reason to be there if that's the case. So no, I, it, it doesn't make any sense. Maybe these were just the most popular ones or who knows. Um, yeah. Also, that scene made me angry for a different reason, oh. which is right after all these ghosts show up, uh, this is when Judo is able to like use new type power to pull the double Zeta back together again. And he has a line about how the double Zeta is using everyone's power. And you know whose power it would make a lot more sense to use? His friends. His alive friends, who we know are all new types and are just a couple kilometers away, probably thinking really hard about him and projecting all their good energies at him. That would have some emotional weight to it. That would mean something. The whole fact that he goes out there alone, when the whole show has been about how his strength is his friends. That brings me directly to the two things about this episode that made me the most mad. And one of them is the very end scene where Judo and Rue go off to Jupiter, which conceptually, I kind of like it. I could think of ways to make it good, but the way it is implemented in this episode, the more I think about it, the angrier I get. It looks like a military mission. Exactly. He's just gotten done expressing how furious he is with the military and the government. Why would he join a military mission? So here are my problems with this scene, <laughs> okay. which are several. <laughs> uh, first of all, the show has not earned a judo rue romance. No, definitely not. Which it does indicate at the end when we get the silhouettes of them and she like puts her head on his shoulder and 
Then there's the earlier lines with L, and it's clear that they're doing a Judo and Ryu romance that has not been earned. That's probably the smallest problem with this. Second of all, as you said, Judo has only just escaped from the war. He has only just reasserted his independence from adult domination, which is so important to him and which he fought so hard for. And then he immediately signs up to go and join what's basically a military mission to Jupiter, where he has to salute and take orders and be chided for being late. Why would he do that? I could see him signing on with a company, but yeah, the fact that it's very military feels all wrong for him. I do think that like canonically it's been established in the source materials or whatever that the only people going out to Jupiter are these Jupiter energy fleet missions that all are very military and hierarchical, but either change that so that it makes sense for the show and the character or don't have him go to Jupiter. Here's the other problem with that though. He leaves his friends behind. He leaves his sister behind. This whole show has been about Judo and his friends. Not like Judo the special solitary isolated boy, but Judo interdependent with his group, his community, his anarcho-Gundamist commune. And having finally gotten Lena back, which was the driving motivation through the first half of the show, that he just like pieces out for Jupiter? No! He also just got done sitting in his cockpit thinking he was going to die soon, wondering, will I ever get to return to Shangri-La? Apparently not. Apparently he doesn't. They just go to the moon for R&R for a week or whatever. And I can sort of understand being willing to leave Lena, because part of the problem was always neither of them really trusted the other to take care of themselves. And so, you know, being able to trust like, oh, Lena is smart and clever and she can handle herself. Judo has gotten more responsible. He can handle himself. Lena is in school somewhere. Like, Lena has stuff to do here in the Earth sphere. But what is the rest of the group doing that is so important that they can't go with him? It does feel a little as if the show is saying, okay, that was all very nice, but all of those strong connections are for childhood, and to be an adult, you have to go out on your own. Which... Why did we just watch a whole show about friendship then? And why did we just see two climactic conflicts which were about teamwork and unity and friendship overcoming isolation and individualism? It undermines the core themes, the core message of the show really badly here at the end. And the fix is simple. The fix is astonishingly simple. They still go to Jupiter, but Judo and all the Shangri-La kids steal the nail argama and take that to Jupiter. They can even wear those cool new outfits they all have on at the end. They have such cool new outfits. Sometimes your paths in life are going to diverge. Sometimes you're going to be apart from people you care about. And that's okay. That doesn't mean you're not good friends. That doesn't mean you don't love and care about each other. Friendship does not require that you be with, physically, the people you care about all the time. This is just me and my own thoughts. This is not... <laughs> This is not what I think the story is doing because the show has not earned this goodwill. This is just <laughs> me talking about life. That's kind of revealing to me that maybe friendship is not the right word for what unites these kids. Because I think as it comes to friendship and as we experience friendship in our lives, that's true. But for them, it feels like something else something that really can't be preserved when they're separated too much. 
because it's a kind of a mutual struggle that they're all fighting for survival together. But if the circumstances of their life have changed such that they no longer need to fight for survival, does that mean that relationship no longer exists? The ending of the show makes clear that the problems with the world have not gone away. And Judo specifically calls out the adults saying, do you think that you can continue enjoying life on Earth, the easy life, without doing anything, without taking part in the struggle to protect it? It's even more nihilistic to imagine all of them just giving up the fight, giving up the struggle. You mentioned setups with no payoff and payoffs with no setup. Shinta and Kum are back and get to be part of the ending scene, even though they could have been left out of this entire show. <laughs> yeah, they don't do much of anything. You know who else is in the ending scene? Saegusa, the guy who dies in the first episode. <laughs> He's, he shows up in two of the crowd scenes. Womp womp. As long as we're talking about continuity errors. I guess he was just really badly injured and recuperated and met up with them on the moon or something. Also, this is more like background cameos, but there's a shot in that ending scene which is definitely the back of Four's head. Ha. And there's another one that I'm pretty confident is supposed to be Kiara from behind. Because you see her, it's in one of the shots with uh, Sela and Lena when they're up on the overlook. And you see them at first from one angle, and standing behind them with her back to the camera is a woman with red hair. And then the camera cuts, and you see them from a different angle, the opposite angle, <laughs> and that same woman is still standing there, but she has blonde hair from this other angle. <laughs> so lots of body doubles in this episode, I guess. There may be meant to be Easter eggs. There are numerous scenes that are ripped straight from previous Gundam, either first Gundam or Zeta, or at the very least are extremely similar and feel like nods to it. And it doesn't feel as if it adds anything beyond being an Easter egg for people who saw those other shows to go like, Oh, just like First Gundam. <laughs> oh, just like Zeta. Yeah. Well, so you've got the bit where the Gundam is wrecked and Judo is just using the core fighter to escape, very much like Amuro escaping at the end of First Gundam. He even has a youngster helping him get out. Side note while we're on that topic, uh, Puru 2 just casually dies in the background and it's never mentioned, never acknowledged, and she's not mourned at all. What the heck? Yeah. I guess that character just didn't matter to anybody at all, even Judo, who spent enormous amounts of time trying to rescue her. The scene with her at the beginning of the episode is quite poignant. She's very ill. Judo goes to visit her before he goes to fight Haman, and Rue says, Poor girl, she's not even going to get the chance to live the life she chose. Ugh. And that's so heartbreaking and beautiful. And Judo angrily says, it's not over yet. Which is another line that seems to be setting something up. Well, it, in a way it does, because she's the one who gets him out of Mosa safely. He would probably have died in there if she hadn't told them exactly where to shoot so that he could get out. That's true. But then, 
And then she just like smiles and sighs and keels over. And I get the people on the bridge not noticing it in that moment since they're all focused on judo, but come on. I mean, it also feels like the final scenes should have acknowledged Elpi Pudu. She was kind of a big deal for most of this series. And there's even a kind of implication in this episode that like LP Pudu's consciousness has awoken in Pudu 2 or something like it. Because when she's on the bridge and she's giving them the firing coordinates, which is a thing that LP Pudu had done shortly before she died, she's wearing pajamas that are identical except a slightly different color. And when Beach at first doesn't trust her, L is like, this is Pudu, this is Pudu. And she calls Judo Big Brother. Yeah. Which is no... not a thing Pudu 2 did. Never. Even before that, there's the scene where Judo is heading out to fight Haman alone, and L goes after him because that's ridiculous. And the two of them are sort of locked together and coasting down the hallway. Zeta had that exact same scene, but with Camille and Fa. When Judo punches Bright, it's very similar in the way that it's shot and the poses of the characters to when Camille punches Quattro and knocks his sunglasses off. The new type ghosts. There is even a quote-unquote sword fight between Judo and Haman inside Mosa. They leave their mobile suits. He's got a bit of metal or a pipe. They end up locked together. Everything goes red and pink. <laughs> it's just like the sword fight between Amuro and Shar. They even do the, the helmets touching thing. I did like the way this scene was done, even though it ended up feeling very pointless, like a lot of the rest of this episode. But I liked trading the rapiers of First Gundam for Haman's pistol and Judo's pipe. Those felt like weapons that were very appropriate for those characters. And none of these references to the previous shows are bad, necessarily. But it does feel very wink-wink, nudge-nudge. Remember? Remember when this happened? Remember how much you liked it? And it's funny to see that kind of thing, which crops up in media now all the time, obviously. <laughs> there are a ton of shows that do sort of like shot-for-shot remakes of famous shots from other popular properties because people enjoy <laughs> when they're like, Oh, I recognize that scene. Oh, I like... <laughs> but that that started being a thing, that that was something shows were doing back in the mid-80s. And I'm sure even before that, there were shows that were highly referential. But that at this point, Gundam has already become highly self-referential. I mean, we looked at that interview with Suzuki Yumiko at one point, where she mentioned that she had watched every episode of First Gundam on TV as a fan. Presumably, a lot of the people working on Double Zeta have very fond memories of First Gundam. It was probably as much for the staff as it was for the audience. And let's be real, by this point, Gundam was already legendary, and I would not be surprised if some of the uh, producer's notes for this final episode said something like, could you make it a little bit more like First Gundam? And now, the continuation of Heike Monogatari Breakdown. As we return once more to Heike Monogatari Breakdown, 
I want to do a quick review of the state of play in what is rapidly transforming from a conspiracy in the capital into a full-fledged civil war throughout Heian-era Japan's 66 provinces. It is currently October of the year 1180. It has been about a month since the 300 soldiers gathered by Minamoto no Yoritomo were scattered by a force of Taira loyalists in the area. Yoritomo himself escaped and fled southwest to Awa province a Hojo clan stronghold on the tip of a peninsula in modern Chiba prefecture. His father-in-law, Hojo no Tokimasa, slipped past the Taira guards while they were distracted and reached the inland provinces of Kai and Shinano. He is currently making contact with the local clans and trying to win them to Yoritomo's cause. Meanwhile, the capital remains firmly in the hands of the Taira family and their leader, the 62-year-old Kiyomori. Secure in his power, he has largely abandoned the traditional political and dynastic maneuvering of the court in favor of naked force. He has placed his infant grandson, Antoku, on the imperial throne and awarded himself the position of chancellor, the highest rank in the government. Those who oppose him quietly find themselves arrested, imprisoned, or banished. Those who oppose him openly wind up dead sooner rather than later. Spooked by the brief uprising of the now-dead imperial prince Mochihito, Kiyomori has called up the Taira soldiers from the provinces and dispatched a punitive force of some 70,000 warriors to find Yoritomo and destroy his rebellion before it can gather steam. In October 1180, this punitive expedition is currently marching eastward along the southern coast. Other than the Taira leader, the only plausible sources of authority in the capital are the two retired emperors, the 53-year-old Go Shirakawa, an old ally of Kiyomori's who turned against the Taira and so now lives under extremely austere house arrest, and the 20-year-old Takakura, the present emperor's father. Since abdicating, Takakura has spent much of his time on pilgrimage to important temples outside the capital, praying for the safety and stability of the realm. These pilgrimages were both right and proper behavior for a retired sovereign, and it also got him away from the capital and out from under Kiyomori's thumb, at least for a little while. Don't worry too much about Takakura, though, because he is already sick, and he will die off-screen during the course of today's episode, without having done much to affect the story. While the tale and Kiyomori are both focused on Yoritomo's uprising right now, it is important to note that he is not the only Minamoto noble gathering forces. While some in the Minamoto clan were content to line up behind Yoritomo as the rightful leader of their family based on his hereditary claim, others saw the uprising as an opportunity to make some changes to the family org chart. One of those was Yoritomo's uncle, Yuki Ie. Back in May of this year, Mochihito had sent Yuki Ie to gather forces, and he took the opportunity to assemble his own independent army somewhere in the eastern provinces. Another independent rebel force gathered in the Kiso highlands, northeast of the capital. This group was led by Yoshinaka, a cousin of Yoritomo. Their fathers were brothers, but in the 1150s a rift developed between Yoshinaka's father and Yoritomo's. That rift turned violent, as so often happens with warrior clans, and in 1155, Yoritomo's older brother attacked and killed Yoshinaka's father. Yoshinaka, an infant at the time, was spirited away and raised in relative secrecy in the Kiso Mountains. He was raised by a local lord named Kiso, 
and to honor his foster father and his adopted homeland, he changed his surname from Minamoto to Kiso. From this point forward, I'm just going to call him Kiso because, frankly, I'm asking you to remember a lot of names already, and I think this will make it easier to keep these two factions within the Minamoto separate. Interestingly, Kiso's older brother also survived. He was adopted by Yorimasa, the warrior poet who joined Mochihito's rebellion in a prior episode. He ended up dying with his adoptive father and brothers at the Battle of Byoroin Temple. Kiso is now 26, and while he won't enter the war for a little while yet, you should know that he is out there gathering his own army, and he has plenty of reasons to hate Yoritomo's side of the family. And while Yoritomo is by all accounts a competent soldier and a brilliant strategist at this point, Kiso is a warrior without peer, and absolutely fearless. As the uprising grows, all over Japan, local warrior bands are in the midst of hard, and usually bloody, debates about which side they ought to join. With that review of the state of things finished, let us pick up the narrative again as Koremori, 23-year-old grandson of Kiyomori and current leader of the punitive expedition, prepares for battle against Yoritomo's reformed army. Koremori's force of 70,000 advanced as far as the town of Kanbara, on the western side of the Fuji River, near where it meets Suruga Bay. Yoritomo gathered his men some 16 miles, or 26 kilometers, east of that position, and we're told that Yoritomo was reinforced by troops coming in from other provinces, giving him a force of 200,000 men. I have to pause for a minute to talk about that number, because it's absolutely eye-popping for a couple of reasons. First, less than a month ago, Yoritomo was struggling to put together a force larger than 300, so it's a little hard to believe that he now has 200,000. Second, our best estimates for the total population of Japan at this point are around 7 million people. If we assume, conservatively, that some 20% of that population is children too young for the battlefield, and that roughly 50% of the adults are women, then Yoritomo's force of 200,000 would have included one out of every 14 men in the entire nation. Of course, this is epic literature, so the numbers are undoubtedly inflated. It's hard to know exactly how much, but the rule of thumb that I once heard is that you should assume the troop numbers are roughly ten times what they were in reality. So the Tyra Punitive Expedition was probably fewer than 7,000 strong, not 70,000, and Yoritomo's new army may have been as large as 20,000. In the spirit of the epic, I'm going to continue using the troop numbers that are given in the tale itself. If you prefer more realistic estimates, just divide by 10. And of course, those 7 and 20,000 numbers may not be reliable either. Perhaps the storytellers were just looking for a way to explain what is going to happen next. Koremori wanted to cross the Fuji River and take the fight to the enemy. But when his scouts reported the eye-popping size of the Minamoto force, his advisors convinced him to stay put in a defensive posture behind the river. Several weeks passed as they waited for Yoritomo to make his move. One of the strongest soldiers in the punitive expedition was a defector who had grown up in the eastern provinces. The Minamoto soldiers came from the same region, 
And so Korimori summoned this man and asked him for his appraisal of the enemy force. Are there likely to be many men among the enemy who are as strong as you? he asked. At this, the man laughed, and he responded, You think I'm strong? The men of the eastern provinces would not even notice me. They don't consider an archer strong unless he can draw an arrow as long as 15 hands. Mine are a mere 13. Such men as they call strong can shoot through triple-layered armor with ease. The Easterners are born in the saddle, my lord, and once mounted they never fall. Their forces can gallop through the roughest terrain without putting one hoof wrong. In the West, if a man's father or son is killed in battle, he retires to mourn and to perform the funeral rites before returning to the field. In the East, they ride straight over the body and fight on. They do not stop when their stores of rice are exhausted, the heat of summer will not stop them, nor the cold of winter. They are masters of this terrain. They will encircle you on the mountain slopes, or cross the river at some secret fording and get behind us. I do not speak this way just to alarm you, my lord, but to warn you. And for myself, I expect to die on this campaign. This warning made its way through the Tyra army. Then Yoritomo advanced his men to the opposite bank of the river, and prepared to attack on the following day. During the night, the Tyra soldiers saw cooking fires covering all the land they could see. Some of these belonged to the enemy army, this is true, but many more had been lit by the peasants of the area who had fled into the hills to avoid the fighting. Already nervous, the Tyra mistook them for yet more Minamoto soldiers, and their nerves turned to terror. In the middle of the night, something startled the flocks of water birds in the nearby marshes. They took flight, and the terror-stricken Tyra thought they heard amid the thunderous beating of wings the clank of Minamoto armor. Thinking they were about to be encircled by enemies fording the river, they panicked and fled en masse all the way back to the capital. On the following morning, Yoritomo arrived to find the Tyra camp empty. Confused in a happy sort of way, he offered tribute to Hachiman, a war god who was the particular patron of the Minamoto family, for this astonishing victory. Two weeks later, the leaders of the punitive expedition arrived back in the capital. Their army, as was common in that era, broke up during the retreat, with each individual band either heading for home or for some friendly stronghold. Some, we can be sure, switched sides then and there. Kiyomori was understandably furious about the failure, and so he did what he always did. He ordered his grandson, the head of the expedition, banished, and the second-in-command, a lifelong Tyra retainer who had been a skilled and loyal ally for decades, Kiyomori ordered him executed. Then he did some more classic Kiyomori stuff. He compelled the emperor to promote various members of his family, including his recently banished failure of a grandson. Then, in December, he sent one of his other sons with a small army to deal with the rebellious monks at Kofukuji. If you recall, during Mochihito's rebellion, the monks of Midera and Kofukuji had both sided with the rebel prince. But while Midera's warrior monks fought the Taira in open battle, Kofukuji had been too slow gathering troops to join the rebellion. So Midera was sacked in retaliation for its role, and Kiyomori, being Kiyomori, decided he was not about to ignore Kofukuji just because they had not participated directly. 
When the Taira arrived, they found not just the warrior monks of Kofukuji, but also monks from practically every temple in Nara, and there are a lot of temples in Nara. The monks put up stiff resistance, and the frustrated Taira decided to burn them out. But the winds were strong on that winter night, and soon the fire spread to the temple, then to all the temples. What followed was horrendous, and I will spare you the details, but the scale of destruction is staggering. The text goes on and on about the treasures, the famous 160-foot-tall golden statue of the Buddha, the ancient scrolls, and so on that were destroyed. Thousands of non-combatants from the area had gone to hide in the great temples to escape the fighting, and the flames came for them, too. A great pall hung over the realm as that awful year of 1180 ended. Only Kiyomori rejoiced in the destruction. But he would not rejoice for long. Soon after word of the burning of the temples at Nara reached the capital, news arrived that Kiso, Yoritomo's cousin, was gathering an army and preparing to seize the northern provinces. Then reports started coming in from every corner of the empire, of Minamoto uprisings and Taira allies turning traitor. Then, amid this conflagration, Kiyomori fell ill. The description that follows is assuredly an exaggeration, but the tale records that his fever was so high, the air itself was unbearably hot within 30 feet of where he lay. All he could say was, It's hot! It's hot! over and over. Water sprayed at him evaporated. When he tried to bathe in water carried down from the sacred springs on Mount Hie, the water around his body began to boil. In the night, his wife dreamed that a flaming carriage waited for him in the courtyard, surrounded by ox-headed demons, shouting, We have come to receive Lord Kiyomori. The hell of unceasing agony awaits him. In his last moments, Kiyomori remained the man he had always been. His dying request to his family was that they hang Yoritomo's severed head in front of his grave. And then he died. Kiyomori's death was a serious blow to the Taira, but not a fatal one. Unlike the Minamoto, they had a clear order of succession. With Kiyomori's eldest and best son dead, rule passed to the eldest surviving son, Munemori. Munemori was the same age as Yoritomo, but he had grown up at court, and was at least an adequate politician even if he lacked his father's gravitas. His first real test came almost immediately. The Minamoto leader, Yukiie, uncle of both Yoritomo and Kiso, brought his army down into Owari and seized control of the roads linking the capital to the eastern provinces. Owari is close to the capital, just 60 miles, or 95 kilometers, as the crow flies, and so the Taira resolved to respond to the threat immediately. Munemori had planned to lead the expedition personally, but after his father died he was needed in the capital so he dispatched his younger brother with 30,000 riders. Yukiie's force numbered only 6,000, but he tried to make up for the difference with a night attack. The strategy failed, his army was cut to ribbons, and he himself barely managed to escape with his life. We won't hear from him again for a while, but in the meantime he's going to make his way north until he links up with Kiso's army. Among those Minamoto killed in the fighting was one of Yoritomo's brothers. If you recall from some weeks back, 
He had escaped execution during the purges 20 years ago, only because his beautiful mother had agreed to serve as Kiyomori's concubine in exchange for her children's lives. At the same time, another Taira force traveled into the north to hunt down Kiso's army. But before they could attack, a terrible storm gathered in the sky above them. Rain poured and thunder crashed, and the soldiers say they heard a terrible voice bellowing, Behold the Taira, those criminals who wantonly burned the great Buddhas of Nara. A storm cloud engulfed the commander, and when it dissipated, his men found him pale and unconscious. They took him to his residence, and in six hours, he was dead. The Taira spent the rest of that year, 1181, solidifying their position. They tried to undo some of the political damage Kiyomori had caused with his incessant purges by pardoning some of those he had banished, and they sent troops to put down the rebellions breaking out in the western provinces, where their position was stronger. They offered gifts to the various temples and paid monks to pray that the rebels would be crushed. Munemori even made overtures to the retired emperor Go Shirakawa, allowing him, finally, to move back into his old home, and even letting him visit with old friends. By 1182, they felt confident and ready to strike at Kiso again. The commander they appointed for this task was the brother of the one who had seemingly just been struck dead by an angry cloud. He was understandably reluctant to take the job, but one does not refuse the Tyra. So he led 40,000 men into the northern wilderness, looking to bring Kiso to battle. Kiso had only 3,000 men at this point, but even so, he immediately left his mountain fortress and went to fight this new army. To overcome the vastly superior Tyra force, he devised a clever ruse de guerre. He split his force into seven columns and had each one of them raise a red banner, red being the color of the Tyra. Each column approached the Tyra camp from a different direction, and some climbed the mountains and came at the Tyra from above, while others circled around through the valleys and came at them from below. At first, seeing these seven forces approaching beneath red banners from every direction, the Tyra mistook them for allies. But at Kiso's signal, the seven columns merged into one. They tossed away their red banners, and out came flags of Minamoto white. This sudden surprise, combined with the way the force had been divided and the difficulties of the mountain terrain, confused the Tyra. Tricked into thinking that Kiso's force was ten times larger than reality, the Tyra troops panicked and they fled. Kiso's men pounced on the fleeing army and harried them. Some fled into the river and drowned, others tumbled down sheer drops into hidden ravines. We are told that more than half the Tyra force was massacred in this way. I'm going to stop the narrative here for today because we've covered rather a lot of ground in the past 3,000 words, but I do want to focus in for a moment on what happened in the immediate aftermath of Kiso's victory on both sides of the conflict. On the Minamoto side, tension erupted between Yoritomo and Kiso. It's not entirely clear what happened, but it seems like Uncle Yukiie was acting as an advisor to Kiso at this point. And it sounds like his advice was all stuff like, you are the true heir to the Minamoto. If you strike quickly, you could defeat Yoritomo. Don't you want to avenge your father? Do it. Do it. Word soon reached Yoritomo that Kiso was planning to attack him, and so Yoritomo led a massive army to confront Kiso 
and he accused his younger cousin of plotting to seize control of the Minamoto family. The two would publicly reconcile and agree to work together for the sake of their shared family lineage, but this incident only further deepened Kiso's resentment toward Yoritomo. If we read Haman as a successor to Yoritomo, the survivor of a defeated clan, exiled at 13, forced to build a new base of power out in the far reaches beyond the power of the central government, the consummate politician and strategist who united numerous malcontents and rebels under her banner, then Kiso is a natural fit for Glemmy. Likewise an heir to the old bloodline, he was raised by an adoptive family for who he would end up feeling great love and affection. He carries Minamoto blood, even though he does not wear their name. He views himself as the rightful heir to their clan, and resents the official leader who he sees as unworthy of that legacy. He's younger and hot-headed, and he develops a taste for the finer things. But even so, he is a powerful warrior. Kiso's reconciliation and agreement to work together with Yoritomo here looks a lot like the tense moment between Glemmy and Haman in episode 23 before their descent to Earth and their attack on the Federation capital. Remember, we are bound to each other by the lineage of the Zabi family. But now let us swing over to the Tyra side. Ensconced in the luxury of the capital, they continue to act as though nothing at all is going wrong. Even as the Minamoto, in the words of the tale, swarm like hornets in the east and prepare to march on Kyoto, the Taira and the other court nobles hosted all the usual parties and performed all the usual ceremonies. They awarded themselves new promotions and traveled around from mansion to mansion congratulating each other on being so great. I cannot imagine a more accurate analog for the leaders of the Earth Federation. that's it. In one final battle, destructive and pointless, Haman is dead. She died, if not on her own terms, then at least without ever compromising her absolute refusal to acknowledge an equal or accept help from anyone not fully within her power. If Kiara in her gamalk is supposed to be a witch's familiar, then Haman is her witch. Her new type of powers make an elegant replacement for spells and secret knowledge. If Mashima is our one true knight, hopelessly devoted to a romantic notion of chivalry, then Haman is his queen. Linked through the Kubilei to the mysterious mother goddess Kubilea, Haman already straddled the boundary between the mundane world and the divine, between the familiarity of the earth sphere and the dread and wonder of deep space. She had the potential to become something more, but her regrets and her grudges bound her to this realm, even as they made it impossible for her to ever truly be part of it. In her final battle now, we see her as another figure, lingering at the shadow-shrouded intersection of witch and queen, Morgan Le Fay, the enchantress of Arthurian legend. Morgan's role in the stories changes tale to tale, sometimes a fairy, sometimes a goddess or a demon, sometimes just a woman. She is Arthur's sister, his teacher, advisor, 
protector, antagonist, undoing, and salvation. In Thomas Mallory's influential The Death of Arthur, she is dangerous and unpredictable, the ultimate other, perhaps a caricatured representation of the threat that feminine power poses to the patriarchal status quo. In some versions, it is Morgan's intrigue that sets off the chain of events leading to the breaking of Arthur's kingdom, the Battle of Camlin, and the end of Arthur himself. But this is not always intentional, sometimes only a sad consequence of her futile pursuit of the Knight Lancelot. Arthur's final battle, like those fought around side three at the end of Double Zeta, is as inevitable and destructive as it is pointless. Fighting a rebel usurper, all the knights of the Round Table and the entire might of Arthur's kingdom is turned against itself. The slaughter that follows is all but total. One by one, the knights of the Round Table, rebel and loyalist alike, are cut down. From its earliest origins in the folklore tradition, this much can be said of Camlin. It was a battle that few survived. The king was mortally wounded. And Morgan came to him one last time. She bore his stricken body in a black ship beyond the misty veil of eternity. His few surviving friends watched him go. Only then, after the battle, did Arthur's reinforcements arrive. Too late to do any good. At the end of this episode, Judo and Haman leave the world in different ways. Haman in death, and Judo aboard a long-haul spaceship his surviving friends watching him go. But in truth, they left the world at the beginning of the episode, when each departed for their solitary duel. Their passage into the beyond is marked by the moment when they are surrounded by the black cubelets of Glemmy's rebel army. Nameless and faceless, these mobile suit monsters are sentinels at the gates of the underworld. Haman and Judo are already gone. She simply does not return. It's hard to know whether Haman's life was tragic. How can we say if it was all pointless without knowing what the point was? Did she crave revenge, power, the rewards of being loved without the ordeal of being known? Why did she fixate so disastrously on Judo? Why did she seem so peaceful in her final moment? Power of the kind Haman sought makes people into objects. It kills them, though they continue drawing breath. It makes little girls into weapons, trophies, body doubles, convenient and disposable. It makes them numbered parts in a series, mass-produced, interchangeable humanoid widgets. When a Pudu breaks or a Minerva goes missing, you replace her. What can a person be in the face of that kind of power, except a pawn? Even Haman herself is made into a thing by the power she wields. A cardboard cutout of a strong ruler. A lonely rock battered by the waves. Puru too may not have gotten to live the life she chose, but like LP Puru before her, she discovered that she could choose. Power circumscribes the mind, it chokes off even the possibility of choice. But Pudutu abandoned the Queen Mantha. She traded her power for hope, 
communion, peace, and love. More than Haman herself, the great tragedy at the end here is how she gathered up all the will of the discontented and twisted it to serve her own selfish ends. All those wretched masses crying out for justice, for peace, for the chance to live as the Earth's sphere teeters on the edge of oblivion, transformed into soldiers, miners, and workers to feed the hungry maw of Haman's war machine. Every battle cruiser and mobile suit in her fleet represents some vital piece of colony infrastructure left to rot. And now look at her kingdom. Wreckage. Dust. All to rise again no more, except as phantoms in the nightmares of the survivors. Alfred Lord Tennyson wrote thus of the Battle of Camlin and his Idols of the King. Nor ever yet had Arthur fought a fight like this last, dim, weird battle of the West. A death-white mist slept over sand and sea, whereof the chill to him who breathed it drew down with his blood, till all his heart was cold with formless fear, and even on Arthur fell confusion, since he saw not whom he fought, for friend and foe were shadows in the mist, and friend slew friend not knowing whom he slew, and some had visions out of golden youth, and some beheld the faces of old ghosts. Look in upon the battle, and in the mist was many a noble deed, many a base, and chance and craft and strength in single fights, and ever and anon with host to host, shocks and the splintering spear, the hard mail hewn, shield breakings, and the clash of brands, the crash of battle-axes on shattered helms, and shrieks after the Christ of those who, falling down, looked up for heaven and only saw the mist. And shouts of heathen and the traitor knights, oaths, insults, filth and monstrous blasphemies, sweat, writhings, anguish, laboring of the lungs in that close mist, and cryings for the light, moans of the dying, and voices of the dead. Last, as by some one deathbed after wail of suffering, silence follows, or through death or death-like swoon, thus over all that shore, save for some whisper of the seething seas, a dead hush fell. But when the dolorous day grew drearier toward twilight falling, came a bitter wind, clear from the north, and blew the mist aside, and with that wind the tide rose, and the pale king glanced across the field of battle. But no man was moving there, nor any cry of Christian heard thereon, nor yet of heathen, only the wan wave break in among dead faces, to and fro swaying the helpless hands, and up and down tumbling the hollow helmets of the fallen. But as for Chiara Soon, she did our work for us. There is no more fitting epitaph than that which she gave herself. (laughs) 
She is Kiara Soon. Forever. Next time on episode 3.46, Perspective. We reflect on Mobile Suit Gundam Double Zeta as a series. I make some predictions. Tom wraps up his research on the tale of the Heike. Radio Free Shangri-La comes to an end. And, for one last time, you will see the battlefield of new types. Mobile Suit Breakdown is written, recorded, and produced by us, Tom and Nina, in scenic New York City, within the ancestral and unceded land of the Lenape people, and made possible by listeners like you. The opening track is Wasp by Misha Dioxin. The closing music is Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. The recap music is New York City Instrumental by Spinning Merkaba. Radio Free Shangri-La is performed by the MSB Players. You can find links to the sources for our research, the music used in the episode, additional information about the Lenape people, and more in the show notes and on our website, GundamPodcast.com. You can get in touch with us on Twitter or Instagram, at GundamPodcast, on Facebook, at Facebook.com slash GundamPodcast, or by email, at GundamPodcast at gmail.com. Or, why not share your wrong Gundam opinions with the world by shouting, It might never be mentioned in the show, but Mashima Zaku 3 clearly has an upgraded version of the biosensor designed exclusively for him. It's called the Highly Integrated Mobile Battle Operator System, or HIMBO for short. Out your window at passersby. We won't hear you, but the world needs to know. This week's Wrong Gundam Opinion was inspired by a mysterious listener known only as Shoulder Pads Defender Flamingo Emoji Zed. Thank you, noble flamingoid defender of that which defends our shoulders. And thank you for listening. I, uh, I did a very Nina-like thing this time, which mm-hmm. is that when I was collating my notes, I ended up writing a series of questions. Like, practically everything on mm-hmm. my page ends in a question mark. In the episode. It's, so it's spelled in English M-O-U-S-S-A, but in Japanese it's written out uh, Mo-U-Sa. Mo-U-Sa. Okay. Well... Research goes here. Scrolling a lot. Lots of research. Gosh, why did I write such a long thing? <laughs> ha. Uh, they appear to be trying to make up for the lack of interpersonal violence in the rest of the show by having a lot of slapping and hitting. little comments but they'll they probably work better as outtakes almost than anything else (laughs) do you have anything else to like discuss the word the Minerva double uses is kagamusha 
And I hadn't known this, but Kagemusha originally meant specifically a body double of like a general or a military leader. It was not an all-purpose term. I mean, I guess she is, in the loosest possible sense, a general or military leader. The Kubele flapping their rear ends at us always feels vaguely suggestive. Even more so in this episode, because usually they just like raise the abdomen, fire off the bits, and then lower it again. But here they're actually just like waving them at us, like up and down, up and down, like a can-can dancer. somehow was entirely unbothered by Kiara's uniform tearing away before she gets killed, mostly because I think Kiara would probably like to be mostly naked most of the time. I mean, you see her like ripping her uniform apart as she goes into battle. Feels less gratuitous and more true to form. <laughs> At the end, when they show the scene of Camille and Fa running on the beach, which is nice, like it's nice to see the two of them having that moment and Camille doing better, clearly. But to get there also necessitates panning across Ireland. So in the middle of this nice purportedly happy ending where they're playing happy music and they're cutting to Camille and Fa having a romantic beach run, we pan right across the ruins of Dublin. And I don't know if the show knows what it's doing. Some of them are becoming grown-ups. Maybe all of them are becoming grown-ups. Well. What a depressing thought. Yeah, I'm, I'm even more depressed and angry about the show than I was when we started. 